and welcome back to part two of 361 Degrees Live here at LBI as part of Internet Week. We're talking about the death of desktop internet and the future of mobile internet. We're joined by Iliko Elia, head of mobile here at digital agency LBI. Ben Lethbridge from the UK's first 4G network, which launched up a month ago, EE. Andrew Grill, CEO of CRED, a leading social influence measurement platform and a prolific early adopter. Tony Blake, director at Milanoki, a company who produced a data control and compression app for smartphones called Data Squasher. And our own Rafe Blanford, 361 team member and editor of the All About Blogs. Okay, let's move on. Matt Lacey has a question. So I'm curious what happened. A few years ago, we were talking about buying into a, a OneWeb, and now we're back talking about desktop, desktop web and mobile web. Rafe Blanford. Yeah, I, I think it's an excellent point, but it reflects the fact that thinking about mobile has changed. Implicit in OneWeb was the assumption that you basically had the same experience on mobile and, and desktop, and I'll keep using those terms for now. But I think uh, mobile has evolved and people have realised that the experience on mobile has to be different to what you have on your computer. And it tends to be the type of things you're trying to do. They tend to be far more transactional in that you're looking up a specific piece of information. Uh, we talked about this actually in the last 361 Degrees podcast. And I think a good example of this is you're out looking for a recycling point. You've got something to recycle. I was looking for parking, if memory serves. Yeah. Ben was looking for parking. Uh, <laughs> not recycling. Not recycling. We had that as an addendum. Uh, but the of the congestion charge. Yeah. Precisely. So, so, exactly. Something like that. And um, when you're on mobile, you're actually looking for a specific parking place, not generic information. And so I think the, the idea of OneWeb hasn't disappeared because we have things like responsive design and mobile-first design. But implicit with that is you actually want a, a different experience. And so you do actually need to think about them as having kind of different user pathways. Um, so I think OneWeb is still there. Uh, it's just that you have to do more than just OneWeb. I think it is OneWeb. It's just uh, you've got to take account of the, the, the device context. and the, uh, the experience the context, that you, you're yeah, trying to get, doing, get across. Yeah. It, Ilico, it's, uh, it, yeah. I've always... When I to, to take the example from from the, the audience about looking up the, the boundary of the congestion charge, or as Rafe said, looking up some where a recycling point is, I've always needed to know the answer to that question. It's just that, in my view, the big screen has been enabled pe people who provide that information to be lazy. They can just print a map, and I can work it out for myself because I can look at the map. And on the small screen, all of a sudden, that laziness is exposed. Is that, are, are we now are we now getting to the point where? we will still have one web and people will perhaps tolerate that laziness less and less, even though perhaps it's still on a big screen. Ab absolutely tolerate the laziness. Um, and, and the fact that it, I, I don't think one web has gone away at all. I think the, 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 the difference is that a lot of companies have built up their digital presence, say, and they concentrated on a, on a large screen fixed internet experience and are now going, how do we now we don't have unlimited funds. How do we now incorporate what we need to do on mobile, tablet, internet TV, connected TV, and how do we do that cost-effectively? So it, there's a, there is a, and it's just at the moment a splinter between do we have to just build specifically for mobile and tablet, just to take those as an example, or can we enlarge our, desk, our, our digital presence to encompass those other types of devices? 
Now, there's, a, there's you know, lots of different ways of doing that, whether it's responsive or adaptive or building different sites or different CMSs. They're all, it, you can't just say one size fits all because there's different contexts around which you use different pieces of data. So just a really quick example of that, if, if I search for a restaurant on my home machine on a fixed internet line, because I'm conscious of using the word desktop now, um, if, I, if I search for a restaurant on my home machine, I am looking to book a restaurant to eat somewhere. If, I'm, if I search for a restaurant on my mobile device, I'm actually more likely to want to eat something. And that context of what you're doing potentially should result in different res results coming back to you and your different, a different path going through. So it's, it's all about the context of what you're doing it in. And in one sense, one web has arrived because I've noticed a recent trend. If you look at advertising or information, there is just a single URL. You go back a few years and it wasn't uncommon mm. to see www.domain yeah. and m.domain, but now it's just the domain and yeah. you know, it's automatically handled by you know, recognition. So in that sense, I think OneWeb is, is just assumed. T Tony, we, we often, when we, when we talk about OneWeb, we get strung up, we get hung up in the user, the user experience, the display. We talk about web pages or apps and we mm. talk about converting them. But actually, isn't one of the biggest differences the underlying wiring, the plumbing, that when I step away from my desktop, the whole experience changes. The internet might go away. It might get slower or faster based on where I'm standing. And isn't that the the one web that you have to build for now, so that actually everything will work on everything, but that the everything that matters is the speed, perhaps, or the latency. Well, it's, it's, it's the delivery at the end of the day. I mean, uh, the, the experience you want is, is an immediacy, whether you're uh, on, on your, uh, your fixed line or your mobile line. And, okay, we've got the, the one web situation where it's you know, um, being delivered differently to different devices. Um, and is context specific, but actually, if it's not being delivered on time, then you're not getting the uh, you're not getting the content that you actually want. It's, uh, it's a, again a person, personal anecdote, but um, we when we build things for customers, they test them in Wi-Fi in their office, and we say it really shouldn't download 300 megs worth of content when you do this thing on the app, and they say, but it worked fine. It only took 20 seconds, and then they go home and they show it to their wives. And, you know, it grinds to a halt. Okay. Silence. Okay, right. We're going we're gonna to move on. Um, we've got uh, two more questions. Penultimate Let's one. move on. Uh, uh, Noel Abrams, quickly, please. We're watching the time. If Facebook did not exist and were to launch today as a mobile app, how would it look and how much success would it have? Thank you, Noel. Uh, Andrew Grill. Who knows that Twitter actually was launched as an SMS service? The reason why... Twitter has a 140 character limit, and no one seems to know why, is because it used to have fit to fit in a 160 character payload with 10 characters for your at name and some handshaking. So Twitter actually started as a text service. So if Facebook were to launch again today, they'd probably have an app. Um, they probably wouldn't have the desktop. You'd probably be restricted. Now, flip it over, Facebook actually put in their IPO that they're going to be hamstrung because they can't put as many mobile ads onto the mobile device and there's a whole other session on that. So I think there are very few people that want to launch a mobile only service because investors and VCs out there want high numbers for advertising. The bigger the screen, the more completely useless, irrelevant ads you can chuck at someone on a, on a screen. Unless you have Google Chrome and ad blocker, I don't see ads anymore. And that's not boasting, that's fact. Uh, I just don't see ads, which is great. When I actually 
turn it off by accident. I see these ads again. I go, what, what's this? So I think to answer your question, um, if they did it again, they would run into the problem. Sorry, if they launched again just on mobile, investors would say, where is the strategy to pump ads onto these phones? So you'd have to go desktop to make any money. So earlier, we, 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 I think we collectively agreed that we were going to sort of abandon the idea of desktop internet and we started to talk about the size of the screen because the connectivity and the size of the device were different. But Ben, you work specifically in looking at the ways that customers you know, use their phones, use their devices. Um, I've got a 10-inch tablet, an iPad, and I don't see many ads on that mm. either because mobile has almost... Um, Indoctrinated people, indoctrinated people with the idea that the apps will be cheap and free and that there won't be any advertising in it. So if that scales up to tablets and all the other sort of mobile devices, yeah. could somebody launch another big startup without all that free money from advertising on the desktop? I, said, I think the really interesting thing about Facebook is out of whatever billion users, 600 million are mobile users, yet 14% odd revenue comes from mobile advertising. It doesn't stack up, it should, right? Should be a lot more there. Um, but yeah, obviously, the, the smaller screen doesn't really work so well. I think if they could start again from scratch, I think Facebook is in, incredibly cluttered and, and ugly. I actually wish Google Plus uh, worked and people used it because it's a simpler, cleaner interface. Um, so I, I think that if, yeah, if, they, if they were to start from scratch again, I think they'd be great to focus on cracking that mobile advertising piece because I think they'd make a hell of a lot of money. Ilico, we. We don't believe that mobiles are really, really doing it. Sorry, advertising is really doing it on mobile at the moment. So, could somebody start a business that is mobile first, perhaps mobile only, and make money out of it? Um, yes, and they absolutely will. Do you want to expand <laughs> on that at all? Um, absolutely. I don't, we, we absolutely haven't um, seen anywhere near the amount of applications or mobile sites that are mobile specific. Um, we're just at the very, very beginning of a very long journey. Um, mobile advertising doesn't currently work as well as it should because you don't have any of the emotion in the advertising that you're seeing on a mobile screen. Actually, you don't have much of that emotion on a, on a web screen either. Uh, it's just slowly getting there. Uh, the, the, the idea that you know, the Nike adverts with, um, and the, 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 the Coke advert for... You won't see a John Lewis ad on a mobile and feel the same way because you've got to watch that on a lean back. Uh, no, the advertising is wrong. Yeah, I think it, you have to think about advertising formats, and most mobile advertising yeah. is basically a, a shrunk-down version of the desktop, yeah. and we know it's a mistake to just do a shrunk-down version of the desktop on the mobile in most things. So of course, that applies to advertising as well. So I think if Facebook were to, to launch a day, and quite apart from the scary thought of a parallel world where MySpace is still the dominant social network, yeah. um, I, I think if it launched a day... The innovation would probably be in the business model. And I also think location would be a much bigger element. Tony? I was just thinking that uh, really the, the, the market is still evolving in terms of the use of apps. And essentially, I, I'm not sure the commercial models have actually uh, been able to keep up with how fast the, the market's evolved. And I, I think it's almost like the, the market's got to settle down in terms of uh, regular patterns and regular uses of apps before I think people can really refine the, the advertising models to, uh, to work out how to uh, monetize the business model efficiently. Okay, let's, uh, let's, go, let's, go out, let's go out to the audience. First of all, what, while you're thinking of your questions, I want to go back to the original questioner. What do you, what do you think? Do you think that somebody could launch a successful business now, mobile first? Um, I, I don't think so. I, I think we are at risk of um, ignoring what uh, the desktop-based uh, um, applications have actually contributed to 
to mobile and the internet in general. What, what Facebook have, have done is they've, they've built a platform which is being used by a lot of mobile applications. And, and there are many more platforms that need to be developed. And, and the only reason they're big is because they have their own desktop, which means like um, my mother, my 75-year-old mother, a long way away, she, she, she would never use a mobile, but she, I'm able to keep in touch with her. So um, we have to make a distinction between applications and platforms. And for platforms, you do need to have a desktop <coughs> presence, and it, it, that's where it needs to start. Okay, any questions from the audience? Yes. I'm brought to mind a bit of the late 80s, early 90s, when no one in their right mind thought that the internet was a way of making money. <laughs> it was all university projects, all open source. Um, GCC is sort of one of the big products which you still remember from that era. Um, and I'm conscious of the fact that we look at Facebook and we say it's all advertising, that's how you make money on the internet. But it took between probably about 96 to the early 2000s before anyone worked out how to make any money. Um, Google started off as a university project and when did it start going to profit? Late 80s, 2002, 2003? Took a fair while and it's the advertising behemoth. So they actually developed as part of their evolution as a company, their income model. And I think it'd be really, really foolish to say that the new income models are going to look like the income models of the fixed line mm -hmm. internet. I think mobile income streams are going to look really, really different. Okay. I think, I think it was really interesting. There was a, there was a, a, a project that uh, Google did, I think, called Reimagine or Rework, Rework, where they took famous old advertising campaigns, the people who made those advertising campaigns, and uh, tried to reimagine them for what would, what would that advertising campaign look like now if it was built now with the internet. And so the, 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 one, I, the one I can remember is the one they did with Coke, uh, the like to teach the world to sing ad campaign back in the day, and they got the guy who was the producer and director for that ad campaign. They brought him into the office and said, you know, how would we? Let's work with us for like over a month or whatever it was to reimagine that advert. What would we do today? We've got all of this technology, and I recommend watching the the, the sort of piece of showing how they made the, the the ad campaign modern, as it were. And if you look at the way he spoke about the ad, it was all about the emotion and all about the, the idea and how to imagine, you know, he talked about Coke having a way of, you know, we wanted to bring everyone together and it was togetherness and making everyone sing that was happy. And it was a real emotional way that he described the advert. And then you listen to all of the, uh, the data analysts and the Google um, representatives talking about it. It was all about, well, how do we drive the CPM and, the, uh, and, the, and other TLAs for this consumer to purchase the product in a, uh, easy to use fashion whilst on the move. There was no emotion at all in what they were talking about. All they were talking about were numbers, figures, data, and completely forgot about the emotion in the advert. Because the reason you buy a Coke or the reason you buy a Diet Coke is because of an emotional connection somewhere. Uh, and that is just completely lost at the moment. Okay, and I, I, I guess the part I don't follow necessarily is, and how does that relate to the differentiation between big screen or small screen internet, fixed line or, or mobile? So when you, when you see an advert on TV, they have worked out the way to get emotion across in an advert. When you see an advert on a mobile, we have not yet worked out the right way to bring emotion across in a 300 pixel wide by 500 pixel deep ad that sits there and flashes at you. The emotion isn't there. Only when the emotion gets there and only when small screens become as beautiful as TV 
is, that's when the advertising money will follow. OK, lots of them, panel. Uh, Tony first. Yeah, I was just thinking that there's perhaps cultural differences in this as well, because if, if uh, I'm sure you'll know in the advertising industry, but uh, in the States, uh, you know, adverts are much more crash-bang-wallop. Um, it's information-giving, which I think is probably similar to, to what you can get off a of mobile, whereas in, in Europe, UK, I, I, I feel that the, the, the art form of advertising uh, is an art form, if you like, in terms of TV and wider screen, but on the mobile, there's an incompatibility there. So there may be some differences on possible monetization stateside to, to Europe. We're Andrew. missing a trick here. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that in 10 years' time, advertising the way we know it will be very, very different. Because guess what? I no longer look at advertising when I'm making a purchase decision. I go and use social networks. I go and use my peer networks for peer advocacy. So if I'm... That's still advertising. But it's different. But, but it's... <laughs> It's not advertising, it's advocacy. So I've mentioned EE a number of times tonight. A number of you know I had a... Hang on, let, I've got the floor. Uh, <laughs> a number of folks... <laughs> a number of you know I wrote a, a negative blog post about EE a couple of weeks ago, and, and you can go and read about that. But I've tonight advocated EE. What I'm doing by mentioning I like EE, I'm also putting my own brand at risk by advoca advocating that. So I think <coughs> we're missing a trick. It isn't about the emotion of advertising on a bigger or small screen anymore. It's the fact that the market has changed because back in the 50s when you had those beautiful emotive ads, you couldn't talk back to the brand. And now what's happening is a thing called a loyalty loop. And McKinsey looked at this about three years ago. The way advertising is happening now is that this big advocacy is making a big impact. So when you're saying, which mobile phone, which mortgage, which bank should I go to? I'm not trusting the ads implicitly as I did five years ago. I'm asking, Ben, I'm asking you and about what they think. Yes, it might be advertising. Because that's changing, I think the emotion is possibly coming out of ads. So if we are saying, how do we get the emotion into a small screen? I think we're missing the point because mobile, as Alan Moore says, mobile is available at the point of creative impulse. I do not want ads on the mobile. I want the mobile to be useful to me. So I think this is a wider discussion, but you'll never get the emotion of an ad on a mobile. And I think in 10 years time, advertising as we know it will be very, very different. Okay, so we have flogged the advertising horse vigorously <laughs> to death. I just want to take some questions. Uh, Kate Red, Day. Red Bull's a great example of that. Different advertising still cost a fortune. 21 million. Hang on, I, th I said we'd finished. We? Ladies, yeah. please. Kate Day. Um, we had an example just last week of an ad that almost was one of those big statements. Um, the John Lewis Christmas ad, in fact, several of the brand, big brands Christmas ads, um, they're doing it in a slightly different way. They gave us, uh, I work for The Telegraph, they gave us um, the ad before it was broadcast, before it was available. They said to us, you can have it first, you can put it up first. Obviously, we ran, this is the John Lewis Christmas ad. Most of our competitors did the same thing. It was one of our most shared stories that day. It was trending on Twitter all day, purely because it was an ad that evoked emotion in an audience and therefore, presumably, uh, forms people's perception of the brand. So it might be led by social actions, which obviously wasn't possible in the past, but it, isn't that still the same thing? That ad has sparked an emotion in the consumer and that forms their opinions, which then leads to their conversations. One day that might have been over the fence with your neighbour, and now it's on Twitter. And, and I agree with you, but, but the, the Christmas ad... Now, I've, John Norris was a former client of mine. When they did their big ad the first time around, I was introducing social to them, so I first-hand experienced what happened. But the Christmas ad for all of them is their one shot. 
Most retailers do most of their business through Christmas, so that Christmas ad has to be a cracker, and John Lewis has nailed it three years in a row. Thank you for that. <laughs> but for the other 362 days of the year, um, it's very different. You can't have a Christmas ad every day. So I totally agree with you, Kate. That is an emotive ad. And of all brands, John Lewis is the best place to make you feel good. And what we found on social three years ago was that the most, in fact, what John Lewis expected people to see was the super at the end that said, no, the knowingly undersold. What people were talking about is how they felt about the ad, which is perfect. But they were talking about seeing the ad probably on YouTube and not on the TV. Advertising has changed. Okay, we've got some comments. We've spoken about advertising, 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 but the question was about money, making money out of an app. And the question I was going to ask is, isn't the challenge to do that that the consumers have a relationship with the mobile operators? I give them money. Um, there's no way for the app provider to get at that commercial relationship. So isn't that the, the heart of the challenge? And advertising is a, is a workaround to try and monetize me as a consumer because I've got no relationship with me. But isn't the issue that the operators are acting as gatekeepers to my spend? Andrew. Um, I think the mobile operators don't know how to make money out of apps or, or, or anything really other than delivering it. They have become a dumb pipe and they won't agree with that. There are services though like one called Keep, K-double-I-P, which actually is embedding stuff inside a game. So when you've had a game and got a high score, up pops an offer for a Starbucks. So that is a way, it is a hack, but it is more relevant because you're more likely at the emotive point of I've just got a high score, maybe to be in the view of, oh, if you're going to offer me something that's relevant, I'll take that. So I think there are complementary models happening. But again, to the gentleman on the right, we don't know what we don't know. And maybe there'll be some other way of cracking this. But at the moment, it's really hard. I know I'm talking a lot, but... That's fine. We, we're is, welcome. I think uh, it's the median, because in the end, I'll give you all an example, yeah? Say if you're at work and you see something that you think is amazing on your desktop, you're very comfortable to call a colleague around and say, hey, look at this, this is amazing. How comfortable would you be to hand that colleague your phone and say, look at this on your phone? The perception is different, I think. I think when you see something on a big screen, I can turn to this man here and say, oh, that's amazing. Just look at him. We've seen it. We've perceived it in the same way. It's amazing. Just look at it on the small screen. It's a different experience. And I think advertisers need to look at that and say, this is a new medium. It's not like cinema, radio, or TV. It's a new medium. And you have to angle your sort of advertising towards a more... It's going to sound clicky, but like a personal experience. So, like I said, looking at something on the phone on an device that has got all of your personal data, all of your closest contacts, is a different experience to looking at it on a TV or in a storefront where you might share that experience with like 30 people in a shop and say, yeah, that trailer was amazing. So I think that is a difference that advertising has to understand. This is a whole new media, it's a new world, and they haven't got to grips with that yet. So, and to, to, go, back, to, back, to go back to the questioner, I, th I think the fact that we drift back towards advertising perhaps suggests to me that you're right, the, uh, the, the mobile networks haven't worked out to how to effectively monetize this. And so the, the easy answer is always to go back to advertising. Certainly we talked about it on the podcast in the, in the past and there's, a, there's an opportunity there. Somebody needs to grasp the nettle. Uh, Victoria, please. I'm wondering, would a diminution in desktop internet have some sort of impact on the way that, first of all, handset manufacturers and second of all, desktop PC manufacturers have to make their products? And um, would the way that people use those products have to evolve? So how is the move to mobile going to affect the world of hardware manufacturing? I'm going to broaden it out if you don't mind, Victoria. How is it going to affect the world of hardware manufacturing? Uh, very recently, Microsoft, that famous software company, mm -hmm. have released a Surface, a hardware device. There's probably some some commercial reasons, but what are the what are the technical what are the what are the strategic reasons that they're making that change? Illico. Uh, so, Surface is mobile or desktop? 
And do we care? I, I actually think it's a massively good thing. The fact that we're changing the way we consume stuff, whether that's data or content or whatever, um, means that the devices on which we consume them will have to change to take into account the way that we, the way we're changing our consumption of that, of that stuff. So it's a, it's a fantastic thing that we're pushing everything towards a much more fluid range of, I don't care whether I'm out or indoors or, um, or in a hotel room or abroad. I just want to do the things I want to do. I'm not, I'm not like the gentleman in the front row who says I probably wouldn't use the internet anymore if I only had 300 megs. I would use it as much as I do, and it's getting more and more and more all the time. But all, all, all the while, we see this, as, as all the focus moves on to touch computing and it moves on to the, uh, the, the mobile end of the spectrum is driving everyone's thoughts now. You know, Windows 8 probably will be one of the most widely deployed operating systems on the planet just because of the legacy that Microsoft has. And that operating system is now certainly touch-centric and probably, in my view, mobile-centric. Um, isn't mobile now driving people's mindsets, even when you talk about static, fixed, desktop computing, however you want to define absolutely. it? Absolutely. It absolutely is driving it. I'm seeing it in, in virtually all of our clients that we, that we speak to. Rafe, Blanc. Yeah. Rafe, sorry, I'll come back to you, Tony. Uh, I, I think that point, you're, you're right, it's a right. The tipping point was last year when smartphones outsold PCs for the first time. Um, and if you look at the businesses, what they're doing, I mean, talk about PC manufacturers to start with. They started going into smartphones, you know, Acer, Asus, all the big um, Asian manufacturers have done that. And I, I almost see tablets as a response to that in that it's sort of computers that are basically mobile. Um, if you look at it from the perspective of the mobile manufacturers, I think it's partly why we've seen the inflation of screen size on mobile devices. You know, go back, let's say, five years, most screens were maybe two and a half inches. Now, I think most people have four inches plus on a smartphone. We're seeing you know, the tablets from Samsung Note 2. I'm sorry, the what? The, the, uh, Don't say that. Don't I'm say sorry, that word. Don't say that word. I'm sorry, I, I can't bring my... Quiet, thank you, Illico. Um, did you say phablet? I did. I, I'm okay. terrible. Ray Blanford is on a yellow card, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but that, that trend has seen you know, a change in devices, and I think that's largely driven by internet usage because uh, internet is the one thing on mobile that really benefits from both extra screen resolution and screen's physical size. Uh, where, so where does that end? <coughs> will, will the screen sizes just keep getting bigger? Will we move towards just only having tablet devices? That, no, we'll, we'll, we'll redesign our, our sites to take into account the smaller screens. Yeah, I, I think there's an element of both um, in that I think we're approaching a limit where it can't grow anymore because it's just not convenient to carry with you. It's no longer mobile. But there is also, I think, um, quite a lot of innovation still to come in the engineering of these devices. You know, we've all seen the future tech with foldable screens, but honestly, I think we'll see that in the next decade. And um, that becomes really interesting because then you have a device that's both mobile and desktop. As I said earlier, it's about screen size. You can imagine something that's folded down to quarter size you open it up, it becomes tablet size. And uh, I was at a conference recently where I heard one speaker speak com quite compellingly and he said, um, connected TVs will be mobile devices because they'll be connected to the 3G network ra rather than your home network uh, soon enough. And so you won't be able to tell the difference. Uh, sorry, Tony, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, pretty much covered by Rafe. But, but we've, we've got the, we talked about one web in the previous question. And I, and I think what we're get, starting to get now is one interface that reads across from the, the, the desktop device, the tablet, through to, to uh, 
the, the mobile device, you know, common interfaces is just a, a natural extension, I think, of the same concept. Okay, so we've got, we've got some comments from the audience. Um, I'm going to come to uh, Steve first and then the gentleman at the back. I mean, I think it's already happening. If you look at this, I think it's the Motorola, Motorola Altrix or whatever. You, and it, Atrix, Atrix, yes. And it comes in with a, a phone and then you plug it into your desk, into your little dock. And it Motorola cancelled it like, about a month yeah, ago. Yeah, it doesn't they? matter though. That is going to be happening. You, you, with, with cloud now, then everything is stored in the cloud. You have your one device, you throw it at home, it will connect via wireless whatever it's going to be, USB or 60 gigahertz, where you can get Oodle, you know, HDMI over wireless, so you don't even need to connect it to anything else. You just sit it there near it. Um, and you will, you, your, your desktop will actually be your mobile because the computing power in your mobile is now so significantly advanced from what it used to be a few years ago. That is just going to continue. Um, and, you know, why ha the desktop will be the easy viewing with a nice keyboard and whatever else, but everything that you want will be with you at all time in your one device, which you then use in whichever scenario you happen to be in. It'll be your digital personification of yourself. Your oh, that sounds like a bit like agency talk to me. Okay, uh, a strong vote. A strong, <laughs> a strong vote for the mobile. The back, uh, mobile from the jump at the front at the back. Sorry, I just wanted to point out uh, with reference to the uh, common or oh, one interface. Uh, we already have that, and that's the, that's the browser. Uh, it, I, I, it, it's 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 a struggle for any startup to kind of you know cater for all the proprietary formats and all the different devices. So, uh, a common browser-based interface certainly is very appealing. Okay, thank you very much. Right, final question. Thank you very much all for for sitting through and joining us for this whole recording. Um, today's event was about. The death of desktop internet and the future of mobile internet. And so, in our and finally question, Malcolm Murphy, please. When should I sell BT? <laughs> when should Malcolm sell his BT shares? Okay, uh, one at a time. We'll start off with Rafe Blanford. What you're, you still own them? Um, I, I think keep hold of them. Um, they're not going to grow massively, but they own an incredibly important part of the infrastructure. They own the infrastructure that you can. Uh, and will continue to do so. And I guess that will become a more valuable commodity. So actually probably hold on to them because they're going to increase in value. Ilika Elia. Uh, BT is one of our largest clients. <laughs> <laughs> Move on. <laughs> Next. Andrew um, Grill. Keep them. For, for one reason, if the fixed line network shut down tomorrow and no one used their handset, how do you connect all the base stations together? You either go cable and wireless, Virgin or BT. So they're going to have the lion's share of the interconnect. The second thing is, as was happened with Telstra, they realised that the copper network is killing them. They're now reinventing themselves with fibre to the curb and those sort of mm -hmm. things. So they are very smart. They have a large infrastructure. I would definitely keep the shares because to keep the mobile networks going, you need to connect the towers together. And guess who does that? Who has the infrastructure? It's BT. So BT has a future as a service provider, not as a not necessarily as a provider to services to consumers. Tony. Well, in answer to your question, when should I sell BT? I think it really depends on how BT responds to to the situation. If they're just going to stay as they are at the moment, then clearly you'd uh, you'd walk away from them. But no company can stand still, and they they have to evolve as well. And let's just go back to to Malcolm. Do you believe that? The likes of BT stand a chance. Can they be flexible and, and useful enough to, to live in a future that is mobile-led? 
well, I'll answer a slightly different question. Um, <laughs> I think BT has... Matt, a, you're not a politician, are you? Yeah, I, think, I think BT has a future. Um, I think it's not a given that that future, the future in which BT will exist, is mobile-led. So the, the question was slightly tongue-in-cheek because I, if it's based on the idea that says the future is going to be mobile-dominated, then it's, it follows that BT is just going to wither on the vine and die. I personally don't think that's going to be the case. I, I think there is definitely a place for the, the big fat pipe into my house um, that needs physical infrastructure. And at the moment, I don't see anybody in the next five, ten years competing with that. I really don't. Um, so it's slightly controversial because I don't see the desktop being dead at all. Okay. Uh, there's, there's a couple of questions, but I just want to take that point that Malcolm raised. In France, there's a, mobile, there's a provider called Free, and they are blending a traditional mobile network with a fixed-line operator by using the infrastructure they have into people's homes to extend their network. And so you can no longer see the difference between a, a Wi-Fi hotspot that your, your ISP might give you and the bits of the infrastructure that might be glued to the supermarket wall that give you 3G service. It, it, do, do, those kind of, do those kind of approaches have a future, uh, Rafe? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the iteration on the triple play, um, because it... Just for, for, the, for, those, for those of us who don't exist in nerdland all the time, what does triple play mean? So that, that's the idea that you're bundling together TV with your internet service, with your telephone service, and, you know, a, a, effectively you're creating a, a connection thing. It doesn't matter where it's coming from. And I think one of the themes we've had this morning is people don't really how they get connected, they just want it to work and work reliably um, and there are going to be multiple ways of doing so well into the future um, and, and you have to start thinking about really exotic stuff to replace you know, wireless and wired, I mean it would be I guess quantum computing or quantum entanglement based communication would be the thing that I could maybe see replacing fixed line and wireless in the end. I, I, said, I said staying out of Nerdland. Yeah. So. Quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement. I'll have two I, of those, please. I, I don't even know if we should go there, but I think what you were saying was yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Right, let's go back to the audience because we've got some comments. Um, a, BT, obviously in different divisions, you've got BT Retail, which sells service to consumers, uh, BT Openreach supplies infrastructure to everyone. everything, everywhere, everyone else. They don't, you know, if the retail arm disappears, they don't actually give a toss because they're going to make more money on selling wholesale bandwidth to other providers. Um, and in fact, the more infrastructure the providers need to provide high bandwidth services, the more they have to buy off BT. Even people like Virgin and um, cable and wireless, although they've got big networks in the UK, they don't have local access, so generally BT still provide the tails for them anyway. Um, there's a 3G, uh, sorry, 4G auction coming up um, the, uh, on, uh, on December the uh, 11th um, when Ofcom is auctioning 800 megahertz and 2.6 gigahertz. Oh, I'm going to be busy that day. I'll, I'll get somebody to bring my credit card. <coughs> well, yeah, it's only 100,000 to put a bid in. Um, so you're buying BT I would, I would, I would be very shocked if BT do not put an offer in for one of those spectrum bands. There are, there's low power um, stuff going on in 2.6. Um, there are going to be 10 licensees in each of those low power groups. Um, if BT isn't one of them, I would be very surprised. Okay, so it's just all too connected to unpick it. Uh, one more comment from the audience. Yeah, I'm just picking up on, on Malcolm's point. I mean, I, I think BT are quite good at continually extracting 
money out of out of households, despite the the growth of, of mobile data. Um, but the probably the player who does that even better than than BT is is Sky, who are who are fantastic at at extracting um, revenue from from households, not just for the for the mobile broadband, but all the other services that, that go in. And then, so going going back to a previous a previous point, when you, you did the the poll of the room, Ben, about you know who pays fifty quid a month, you know for their for their mobile data or their, or their mobile services, and I think it was only Andrew who was the one who who put his hand up to say that he was paying that. I mean, I think I think that's quite interesting that you know quite a few households, or certainly my own, you know, we pay more than fifty pounds a month with with Sky, yeah. um, but for my mobile internet, you know, I I currently use GIFGAF and pay 10 quid a month. And I think, you know, it's a challenge for the industry about that the customer seems to be educated that, that mobile data should be ubiquitous and it should be cheap and it should be unlimited. And if you pay more for that service, you're a bit of a mug. It's interesting you raised that. A friend of the show who can't be here with us this evening, Dan Lane from Impossible Telecom, ran a survey online just yesterday. Dan, Impossible Telecom, Impossible Telecom is a startup that's looking at delivering a, a kind of a, a different type of mobile network experience. And that's not an advert for Dan because he's not selling anything yet. But he ran a survey on Facebook and he said, how much will you pay for a gig of data? Just a gig, and it will last as long as you like, but if, if I give you a gigabyte of data, how much will you pay? And the answers ranged from £1 through to £10, but the weighting was much, much closer to £1. People don't apply a, a huge amount of value to, da to data at all. So we, do we have any more points from the audience? Just a quick one on that. I wonder, I wonder if that price would change if you said it was 100 megadata or uh, 100 gigadata, <coughs> and whether the, the relationship between that flex whether it was still like just a, a thousand times a pound. I've got a slightly different question. Is, you know, do people actually know what a gig of, gig of data actually looks like? Hallelujah. Someone who shares my view that billing by megabytes is ludicrous. Yeah. So should it be by minute? No. <laughs> uh, however, going back to the pricing, you are, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an ISP or telco or whoever, provide, getting anything off your network... Ignore in in the UK because it's it's virtually free apart from the links costs whatever, but you are paying anywhere between one dollar to thirty dollars per month per megabit. And chicken shouldn't be that cheap in Tesco's. But that's what they're paying. That's okay, so the, that's the physical cost. Steve makes the point that it's unavoidable that this is the way the market works, and that you'll never be able to you'll never be able to put, tear yourself away from that the, the reality of the market. Our final contribution of our final question of the entire evening. So no pressure. We began saying that the desktop is dead, and I don't think there is agreement yet that it's dead. So what lives on? Okay, let's go around. Let's go around. One answer from everyone. I want 30 seconds and no more. We haven't agreed the desktop is dead. If it's not dead, what is it that lives on? Andrew, I'll, having teased you, I'll let it's you go first. It's a hybrid. So when I watch television, I have at least one other device with me. It's not dead. Um, we will adapt. Tony. It will live on. It will just have a smaller uh, air time to our, our um, internet consumption. Elico. I, I, yeah, I completely agree. It, it becomes much more fluid. You basically want to do what you want to do, when you want to do it, with the most convenient device to do that thing on with. Rafe Blanford. Uh, what becomes dead is the idea of the internet through a single device. Instead, we have a whole cross-section of devices, increasingly in, in number, which are internet-enabled, and we consume it wherever we like, however we like. 
Okay, I'd like you to say thank you very much to the panellists, please. Uh, Tony from Milanoki, Andrew, from, CEO of CRED, uh, Illico from our hosts, LBI, Rafe Blanford from the All About Sites, Ben, who's had to step out of the room from EE. I'd like to thank them all very much for their contribution this evening. I'd like to thank you guys for coming and, enjoy, and participating in our recording. We really appreciate it. The audience feedback is always uh, from those that listen to the podcast that they really enjoy hearing the voices of the people in the room and their ideas as well. So thank you very much. I'd like you to please to give the panel a really big round of applause.